0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hi, everybody, and welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm your host, Stephen Siegel, here on New Books in East European Studies. And today, my guest is a historian, Pavel Markievich, who's joining us from Warsaw to talk about his new book and his first book, Unlikely Allies, Nazi-German and Ukrainian Nationalist Collaboration in the General Government During World War II published by Purdue University Press 2021. First of all, Pavel, congratulations on, on your great book. It's a pleasure to have you today.
0: Thanks so much, Stephen. Um, it's a pleasure to be here with you and, and with everybody listening.
1: So a little bit about our author, and then we'll get right into the book. Paweł Markiewicz is currently Chief Specialist Analyst in the International Security Program at the Polish Institute of International Affairs in Warsaw, Poland. A native of Revere, Massachusetts, He completed his undergraduate studies at Salem State College before receiving a master's degree from Harvard University's School of Continuing Education and Extension Studies graduate program. In 2019, he successfully earned his doctorate in modern Central East European history at Jagiellonian University in Kraków, Poland. His research interests include topics in 20th century East Central European history, nationalist movements in the region, Polish-Ukrainian studies, Ukrainian-German relations, and Polish diaspora issues, among others. He's lectured were spoken at events in Poland, the Czech Republic, Ukraine, and the United States. Dr. Markiewicz was a visiting scholar at the National Academy of Sciences Institute of Ukrainian Studies in Kyiv and at Salem State University Center for the Study of Holocaust and Genocide before completing a visiting fellowship at Harvard University's Ukrainian Research Institute, Hury. Uh, and he's contributed articles and reviews to such journals as Slavonic and East European Review, Canadian Slavonic Papers, The Polish Review, Jahrbücher für Geschichte Osteuropas and Polsky Czechland diplomatician, while providing commentaries, including to the Czechoslovakia and Gazeta Wyborcza newspapers. So I want to ask you a lot of questions, Pavel, about this book. Uh, I am so excited to talk to you about diplomatic history and in all of these complicated relationships during World War II. My first question for you is, is simply a question of motivation. What was it that motivated you to get? Involved in this research,
0: you know that would that would have to be um, a tip of my a tip of my hat to to my former uh, dissertation advisor at the Jagiellonian University, uh, Dr. Jan Bruski, who, um, when I came to the to the doctoral program and, and when I came to be his his uh, his student, suggested the topic to me of Kubiowicz, the Ukrainian Central Committee. Um, this, this idea of looking at German-Ukrainian cooperation, in general government, um, he brought it up to me in a very subtle way, of course, suggesting that I kind of do some of my own research on the topic to see what's already been written about it and what hasn't been written about it. Um, and when I, when I began that kind of self-research, I noticed that uh, this is a very important topic, um, not only to the region, but also to the historiography of the Second World War itself, and that there still lacks, um, or there lacked, at least at that time, a comprehensive understanding of, of the topic. And that's, that's what really convinced me that this is something that's, number one, important to pursue, and number two, worthwhile to to write about.
1: I think that's a really good place to start because there there's so many entanglements in the story that you tell. This is really a project of histoire croissée or gekreuzte g- geschichte, right? And um, maybe you could give our listeners an idea of who Kubiovich is. Who Who is this tall, bald, bespectacled, Geographer, ethnographer. I'm not really quite sure what what we can call him. Who was Volodymyr Kubiyovit?
0: Well, that's a you know that's a really good question um, to start out with. And reading his his memoirs that he wrote in 1970 and 1980, he kind of almost had a difficult time, you know, writing who he was about himself. Right. First and foremost, he made sure to to underscore that he wasn't a, a Lemko or someone someone from the Lemko diaspora, Lemko community, um, but he made sure to note that he was Ukrainian. It's interesting, though, that, uh, you know, he identifies himself in that way um, because he grew up in, in a very almost a common type of, of family scenario at the time where his father was was a Ruthenian or Ukrainian and his mother was Polish. So he grew up in this split ethnic, commun- ethnic uh, household and that he wrote about extensively in his memoirs, that he was exposed to, for example, the classic um, Ukrainian works of Shevchenko. He was exposed to the history of Ukraine by Khrushchevsky from his father. But on the flip side, he was also exposed to Shinkevich and the trilogy by his mother. So he had this almost dual track identity growing up. And I think... Historian Frank Golczewski nailed this on the head when he said, "Growing up in this kind of milieu where you have this mixed ethnicity, you are able to almost self choose what you want to be. Right? It's it's not always forced upon you. Um, and then as he grew up and as he grew older, living in the Second Polish Republic, given its um, changing policy towards the Ukrainian community, the Ukrainian minority." at the times, it, he kind of gravitated more towards that Ukrainian identity than the Polish one. Um, so he would go from being Wojciech Kubiowicz to Volodymyr Kubiowicz, changing in that sense, um, making more contacts with the Ukrainian community outside of Kraków, where he spent a lot of his time going to Lviv or Lwów at that time. Um, in, in, exchanging thoughts and ideas with with a lot of a lot of the intellectuals there Um, greatly helped him self-identify as as ukrainian rather than polish Um, of course his intellectual track you know like like you mentioned Stephen, if he's a geographer ethnographer um his intellectual track was really motivated by those types of topics uh i think at one point he called himself an anthropological geographer
1: um, exactly. Yeah. So, like Ratzel. Yeah, exactly.
0: <laughs> right. which, which, is, which is really an interesting type of, of understanding. Um, but, you know, if we look back and, and see the works that he wrote, um, especially, you know, during his doctoral studies soon after, it would make sense that he kind of identified himself in that way, um, where he wrote about mm, the, the physical characteristics of some of the mountain ranges where Poles and Ukrainians lived in southeastern, southeastern Poland, um, you know, as well as the communities that lived there. So so it was this kind of geographical, anthropological mindset that he had as well.
1: Yeah, I, I think that's really important. Um, and, and you mentioned his mixed ethnic origins and how you know he had grown up speaking both Polish and Ukrainian. Um, I want to come back to Kubyovich because I have a lot of questions about him and, and his very long life from 1900 to 1985 and, and his involvement in the general government. Um, but I wanted to ask you another very big question in the way that you set up your book and, and your chapters, and maybe you can introduce those to us as well. Um, and, and that is, who are these unlikely allies? Who, who are your big
0: states, let's say, in this book, yeah, well, you know, just just going through the way that I kind of set it up, um, you know, I started off kind of given a background of of Polish Ukrainian relations from the end of the First World War up until the Second World War, because of course that's that's critical to understanding you know, the wartime situation in the general government, and I followed that up with this understanding of Ukrainian German relations also in that same time period for the same reason, right? Because those three, those three vectors, the Polish, German, Ukrainian, certainly intersect and they intersect very hard once the war breaks out. So it's, uh, I figured that it would be important to kind of start off with those two. Um, and of course, then, then I go into, um, you know, the war itself where Kubiovich finds himself, um, what the German policy is, the occupational policy is, you know, once, once the Polish state ceases to, to exist, um, or the Polish country ceases to exist, um, which I'm, I'm assuming that we'll talk about very shortly. Yes. Um, and then, you know, just kind of a chronological, um, path to seeing how the relationship formed between, you know the, the German, the Nazi German administration, and the general government, and the ethnic groups that they controlled. And you know, the, my focus was, of course, on the Ukrainian ethnic group and how that relationship affected, you know, how the poles saw saw things. Um, right. So that's kind of kind of the big picture, and you know, that lasted from mid October 1939, when the general government was set up, until you know the beginning of January 1945, when Hans Frank drove out of, of Krakow, um, in flight of the, the Soviet advance. Mm-hmm. So it's mm-hmm. a very expansive timeframe, which covered pretty much the entire war. Um, yeah.
1: Yeah. I, I wonder, um, Pavel, if we might work from, from the center of your book sure. out and, and maybe to the beginning and, and, and to the end. So what, what would you call the centerpiece of your book topically, or, or maybe just in, in terms of, of year, is it September 1939? Is, is that the most influential moment? Is it the Pilsudski coup in 1927, which you talk about as well? I'm really interested in how you're framing the Polish-Ukrainian relationship because there's so much historiography, and, and you could introduce that too as if you, because you cover so much of it. But my, my question for you is what the sort of heart of the book is for you. What's the center of it?
0: Well, I, I think, you know, one of the things that I was really – Mm, what I really tried to get across, you know when I was researching this and, and coming up with the materials and seeing what was what was in the archival documents and things along those lines, was to show how um, the, the cooperation between um, Kubyovich and his Ukrainian Central Committee on the one hand and the German occupation administration on the other, um, how that affected um, the relationship between everyday Ukrainians and poles, as far away as, you know, in the helm region of the Lublin district or, you know, in in Lviv-Lemberg um, under German occupation. And that for me was very important because I had a strong conviction that um, the German aspect in all of this was missing in a lot of the historiography that discusses the Polish-Ukrainian relationship during the Second World War, especially in the general government. And that's, that's what I really wanted to fall back on and, and show that there was this motivating factor or this you know, this, this third factor that employed what can be you know, regarded as the quintessential imperialist um, um, colonizing style of divide and rule that up until about mid-1943 worked very successfully between for the Germans and the general government. I and mean, we, can't, we can't really question that. It worked, for the most part, quite well. Um, once the front started to break in the east, and then, of course, once the partisan activity really heated up behind German lines in the general government, well, that's when things started to really get messy. But up until about mid-1943, this policy... Uh, that Hans Frank was very, very uh, vehement in employing of and rule was was you know, work well.
1: Yeah, I, I mean, I'm thinking about the the moment that that you talk about when when you really get into um, the meetings of, of Ukrainians with Germans in in places like Krakow of how this brutal policy or process of, of Germanization. Um, was triggered. And and of course, that this is the establishment of the general government for occupied Polish territories. As you mentioned, it's the full title for the general government. Um, so I, I wonder if you might, from that point in, let's say, October, November 1939, it introduced some of the other characters and then what the German Especially the German-Ukrainian relationship is so. uh, You know who is Hans Frank? What what does he do? And then how the how do the Ukrainians get involved with him?
0: Sure. Well, Hans Frank, of course, um, former or one-time attorney for um, the National Socialists. He defended many of um, many of the the imprisoned Nazis during the interwar period in Munich, um, and he became a fairly close. Uh, confidant of Hitler's and he was chosen um to lead this you know quasi-state creation that became the general government and then just you know just to give kind of this mental idea of what the general government was, it was what we could consider today to be central Poland, uh central in parts of eastern Poland um that was that was formed into this 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 quasi-administrative unit. Um, and then, you know, the the, the territories of, of southeastern Poland that went up to um, um, Lviv, what, what would today be present-day Lviv, was also included after 1941. So this was this conglomeration of land that was incur- inhabited by Poles, Ukrainians, Jews, of course, and, and some other ethnic groups. Um, the creation of the general government forced many of the administrators that came in with Hans Frank and that whole apparatus to think about what to do with the whole, what, what to do with the minority issue, right? Before the war, Poland was a very large minority state um, with, uh, with the Ukrainian minority being the largest at about 15, 16%, a large Jewish minority, of course, Germans, and many others. So the question was what to do with all this or well, following the, the, the racial doctrine of, of the Nazis, the whole uh, social apparatus was flipped upside down, one could almost say, where Jews and Poles who were very, very populous were placed at the bottom of the ladder. Uh, the Germans that came in were placed at the top as the administrators. Any of the, the Volksdeutsche were kind of, you know, right under them as as loyal, loyal uh, Germans. And in the middle, what we had were The Ukrainians, um, you know, some of the Belarusians that also inhabited some of those eastern parts of of the general government um, and the Highlanders as well. The Guralin folk, right, that that were seen Mm -hmm, as mm -hmm, these these elements um, that, you know, the administration could somehow work with in order to um, marginalize the Poles and Jews even more. Right. So that was one of the key. The key um, aspects in this whole occupational um, apparatus was to use these groups or to not only use them, but to shave them away right, from, the, from the larger Polish nationality um, by recognizing uh, or you know, by doing what the Polish, the inner Polish government failed to do, recognizing them as being um, ethnically distinct rather than just being Poles. And that's mm-hmm. that's what motivated mm-hmm. yeah. many of these groups to to fall into line and work with the German occupation.
1: Yeah, I, I want to follow up on that, Pavel, because I, I think you have a really interesting argument about Kubiowicz and how he pitches the welfare project. Could could you talk a little bit about this the this um, intersection, maybe of, of the racial state with all of its hierarchies, where poles poles fall, where Ukrainians fall, um, with Kobayevich is sort of an intermediary. It's a very fascinating idea. that He's pitching the welfare project to Ukrainians, of course, right? And it does this you know, in meetings and, and things like that in Krakow. Could, could you explain through your sources how you get at that issue?
0: Yeah. I mean, what, what's really interesting is that you know, when the Germans decided that they would organize these welfare committees, Um, A Polish welfare committee, which was the Rada Główna Piekunca, is what it was called. The Ukrainian one, the Ukrainian Central Committee, obviously. And then there was a short-lived Jewish welfare committee up until about 1941. Um, This idea came about from the German side uh, because they obviously weren't going to give these groups any political recognition, but they still wanted to have these groups around um, as a means of Giving them some kind of representation, so they knew what was going on within these communities first and foremost, um, as an added an added kind of set of eyes and ears. but to also, you know, use these ethnic um, welfare committees as an added means of dividing and ruling among the ethnic groups. And I think that's also something that's very important to add here. Now, when Kubyvi was was chosen to to lead the committee, um, it's interesting because one of the main uh, German requirements was that the leader of the Ukrainian Central Committee had to be someone endemic to the general government, um, not someone that, would, that came from outside the general government like so many Ukrainians did at that time. About 30,000 Ukrainians came into the general government fleeing Soviet occupation. Um, so you had a lot of the Ukrainians from... Uh, Lviv, and those areas, the very well-educated Ukrainians that were coming in, um, as well as the very um, nationally conscious Ukrainians, ones that were zealous nationalists, even adhering to the organization of Ukrainian nationalists. Um, You also had democratic Ukrainians from the UNDO party, the Ukrainian Democratic National, um, National Party. So you had this wide spectrum of Ukrainians coming in, But the Germans made a point of it that the man that would lead this whole organization would have to be someone endemic. So the decision fell on Kubyovich as someone that was um, that could work with many of these individuals um, who had a broad understanding for the most part of the Ukrainian community, especially in the general government area. and someone that had that nationalist drive as well. Now, what's important to add here is that the Germans obviously created the whole legal apparatus for the central committees, the welfare committees, and so on. What they added for the Ukrainian or for the to the Ukrainian one was this idea of um, cultural welfare, and this is something that Kubyovich really. Um, successfully exploits. That's 30,
1: interesting. Yeah, mm-hmm.
0: throughout throughout mm-hmm. the time in the general government, whereas you know, Poles were unable to. Polish culture was was completely uh, banned in, in every sense of the way, from schools being closed to the universities to, of course, the famous incident where the, the professors of the Jagiellonian University were, were were taken off to to Sachsenhausen um, and imprisoned there. So Polish culture was completely gone. But as a, you know, what I call a token concession to the Ukrainians, the Germans felt that they could gain more loyalty from them by offering them, for example, um, what was stipulated as these cultural concessions. So Ukrainians had a vast network of elementary schools, vocational schools in the general government. Um, There was the Ukrainian newspaper, the publishing house um, that, that functioned very well at the time as well. And they were given all these these types of of concessions. Now Kubyovic saw this as vital to not only... He saw this vital for two reasons. Um, First of all, for him, these cultural concessions and working in this way to... Or or using them, exploiting these cultural concessions um, allowed him, or at least he thought this was his vision would allow him to kind of pick up the national consciousness of the Ukrainians in the general government, especially in areas like the eastern parts of the Lublin district, for example, where these Ukrainians were mixed. Um, They were second, third, fourth generation, where they spoke more Polish than Ukrainian, but would claimed that even if they have a drop of Ukrainian blood in them, they're still Ukrainian and we have to work on these people to raise their national consciousness to kind of create this Ukrainian community out of all these people. And that kind of links with, with the second reason um, that he sought to do this was because that was something that he could use to then claim that the territories inhabited by these people were in fact ethnographically Ukrainian which means that they belong to some kind of either Ukrainian state in the future or a a Ukrainian autonomous territory within the general government. There were these various visions of what that would mean, but that's kind of the, the, the large or the broad scope of what Kubiovich saw by this kind of um, cultural, uh, cultural uh, welfare, right? To create, to create or recreate um, these Ukrainians, and to also you know, kind of um, catch up to the point at least where they were during the interwar period before going on this kind of offensive, if you will.
1: Right, right. I mean, I, I, I understand the, the nature of the project and, and how he's you know, framing himself as a kind of almost like an exceptionalist. I don't know if that's the right word, but, but he is stressing a, the uniqueness of Ukrainian ethnography and territory, and it's all the more ironic given his, given his biography, his marriages, all of those sorts of things. Um, I, I have another question for you, and this is because of so much work being done on Oun and and you know, Bandera and Melnick, and I'm thinking back to Tim Snyder's work, obviously, but Others like Christoph Meek and Tariq Amar and Jagorz Rosolinski-Liebe and John Paul Himka and many others, I th- I'm sure you can mention. But I mean, what is the relationship between the central government that Kubaevich is running and O'UN? He's thinking, right, that the central government is bigger, better, that it sort of out outflanks or maybe frames. The OUN. What what is that relationship?
0: You know, it's 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 a very interesting relationship because it you can almost break it down into into um, into two parts, right? The first part is is the actual you know relationship where, where they're working together, and then the second part is kind of where they where some of them go in their separate ways. and And let, let me just explain that. Um, up until 1941, right before the German invasion of the Soviet Union. The, the crux of the work of the Ukrainian Central Committee in Kubyovic was in the general government, um, in, the, in those parts of the general government that obviously didn't extend farther east. Um, this was a time where, um, as I mentioned before, um, many of those Ukrainians that came into the general government in 1939, 1940, were nationally conscious, belonging to the organization of Ukrainian nationalists, you know, to either the more radical Bandera faction, to the more moderate... Melnik faction. Um, but they were there. And Kubiovich depended on many of these own members to staff his local committees, you know, at the city level, the municipal level, at the county level, to be um, these stewards of Ukrainian nationalism and Ukrainian uh, national consciousness at the lower level. So he worked with you know what would be the whole own organization, both factions. Now, you know if if we if we you know look a little further, we can say that by the way that he you know, pursued, for example, his his you know, political uh, agenda, that he leaned more towards the Melnick faction, which was the faction that um, the faction of Oun that. Propagated closer collaboration, cooperation with the Germans, um, in order to reach the goal of of a Ukrainian state. Um, you know, there were even conversations between Kubiowicz and representatives of the Central Committee with Melnik and many of his top officials um, that it, where where the two sides came almost to a gentleman's agreement, right? That mm, the,
1: that's an interesting phrase, yeah, right,
0: mm. right mm. Um, yeah, saying yeah. that. You know the Ukrainian Central Committee would be the exponent of the organization of Ukrainian nationalists, which was obviously, you know, illegal uh, in the general government, right? So it would be this exponent. Um, Kubiovich would promote Melnik um, to general government officials in the future, which he did in many notes um, in 1941, especially when when things were getting hot um, and when it was becoming obvious that there would be this attack or invasion. Um, into the Soviet Union, Kubiowicz sent many letters, uh, signed many letters, in which you know he broad or he said that um, you know Andriy Melnyk would be the future leader of a Ukraine. He supported that idea, um, and you know through these negotiations, Kubiowicz promised not to supersede the authority of own. Right, he'd be the spokesman in the general government, but he wouldn't supersede them. Um, now, a problem that that arose in, in all of this was the fact that you know, when, when the two factions, the Bandera faction and the Melnik faction, um, were at loggerheads at the top level, that transplanted also to the bottom and local levels. So within these little Ukrainian committees, you know, in villages, in townships, and in cities throughout eastern Poland and southeastern Poland, Kubiowicz began getting these notes saying that, well we're having problems because Melnikites um, that are running this central committee are excluding Banderite supporters from the central committee and they're starting infighting and this whole scuffle starts to break out, um, which he has to extinguish very quickly, especially because the Germans are pressing him to do so because that's obviously upsetting certain kind of, you know, uh, upsetting the harmony of occupation, if you will. Um, so he's forced to almost take aside um, and, he, and he takes the German side here, where he, um, where he cleans house in a lot of these um, pivotal local committees, um, throwing out either Bandera supporters, melnik supporters, replacing them with kind of these moderate nationalists that he can rely on. And that comes at a time um, which is very fortuitous as well for Kubiovich. It comes in 1941, just before and right after the German invasion. So he cleans house, and a lot of those nationalists head east anyway. Um, And it works out for him in that sense. Now, just to quickly add here, um, the Bandera faction, it's interesting reading a lot of what they say, they view Kubiovich as um, a a national, almost a national traitor and collaborator in the worst sense, Um, because obviously um, it goes against their agenda. which was, I mean, you know, an agenda that was based on also working with the Germans at one point, but then it completely, it completely switched 360 degrees um, by 1942, right? Um, but throughout the whole war, Kubiak is seen by them as this, this almost type of of national traitor who continues to, you know, work with the Germans given everything that they're doing, everything that's going on.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I mean, I have. Uh, two big questions about this so-called Kubiowicz action and, and how, it's, how it's viewed, what you're mentioning. Um, the one question, I guess, is, is Kubiowicz ruling as a kind of furor? This is a very pointed question because so far we haven't used the F word fascist, right, um, in, in describing SS Galitsyn and, and other things. And the, the second part of this is using your sources because you go back to Krakivsky, Visti, Visti. Um, how is Kubyovic perceived? I mean, how is the Kubyovic action perceived by the Germans? And then of course, by the Poles, both in the underground and the government in
0: exile. You know, it's interesting because um, certainly the way that Kubyovic is perceived um, varies, obviously among, among the different ethnic groups. Um, If, What's what's important to understand, and I think that, that we that I should you know clarify this point as well. Um even though the Ukrainian Central Committee had you know the, this legal set of guidelines that were penned by the Germans, um which they had to follow very explicitly into the letter, there were also mm, these internal right guidelines mm, that that were created by many of the nationalists that staffed um, the Central Committee. And the way that this Ukrainian Central Committee was set up was almost on the, the classic Führer Principle um, model of leadership, where you had uh, the main man at the top and, and you know, the support, and he was the be-all, say-all, and so on and so forth. So that was you know, the way that, or, or landed almost in this position, um, to begin with. Uh, but when we look at, you know, you know certain articles in Krakowsky Visti, as you mentioned, or some of the other reports, um, you know, of Kubiovich's travels throughout the general government, you know, we see that he's feted in the style of, you know, this kind of national leader or nationalist leader, um, to kind of the point that he's saluted by school children, um, you know, or by teachers when he does these inspections, um, you know, and that gives that aura of this this Fuhrer style of leadership. Um, he's also idolized, right, for his for his name day, um, Saint Volodymyr. Um, you know, Krakivsky Visti had a full page spread on on you know his achievements, right, and how it was all for the greater good of the Ukrainian nation, and so on and so forth. Um, now Kubiovich claims in his memoirs that he didn't like this. Um, but I think that he certainly got used to it um, as the war went on, that he got used to being seen as this this quintessential leader of the Ukrainian community in the general government. And it's interesting because by 1944, right, when things are even starting to come apart a little bit, he makes that argument. He says that, well, I'm the leader of the Ukrainians in the general government. Um, so so I need to have a voice in these matters as well. Right. So, so this kind of it did. I don't want to use this term, but I think it would be, it, it, it's worthwhile to use. It went to his head, right?
1: Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, I, I guess, you know, what were the alternatives to, to Frank and Kubijovic? Like, you know, you're, you're dealing with this in a lot of your later chapters. And again, I'm urging listeners to read the book because we can't possibly cover the the richness of your material, but you know, I'm thinking of of one of the mid, I, I think, or later chapters where things begin coming apart. in, in say, like early 1944, and you know, Kubiovich is still meeting with Frank because they meet every New Year's New Year's Day, I think it is. And so, I mean, is there any evidence from from the sources? Because I know the memoirs are, are not all that reliable, but can can you actually get you know? To the heart of the matter and, and how Nazi security officials are, are treating Kubiovich as the head and, and pressing these security issues, what, what exactly happens in that relationship by, by that later point of the
0: war? Yeah, well, you, you know, um, a lot of it had to do with using his role, using the person of Kubiovich to kind of um, being, as you mentioned earlier, right, that middleman between the German administration, the occupation administration, and the Ukrainian community. Right, he was almost that that um, that valve, right, or middleman that went between them. Um, a, a lot of at this time, late 1943, 1944, a lot of what they were pressing him to do was to urge calm, um, to use his voice to urge calm between the the growing conflict between Polish nationalists and Ukrainian nationalists that was taking place in. Uh, the Galician district, for one, and then in the Lublin district as well, um, because, of course, this was going contrary to um, the occupation uh, apparatus, right? It was, it, was, it, was, it, was, it was hurting the occupation regime, hurting its image. Um, and, and, you know, they were pressing on Kubilovic to use his leverage contacts, whatever he had, um, as an added means of trying to calm and quell the situation without having to resort to um, pacifications and things along those lines, which would only, which would only um, inflame things even more for the Germans. So that was one of the main ways that they decided or that, that they used Kubijovic um, in that sense. Now, in another way, Kubijovic was very instrumental as well in his um, role... Um, in, in urging young Ukrainians to volunteer for the Galician SS division, right? He was, he was the front man, and he played a very prominent role in that, um, so much so that he even signed, um, or symbolically signed, as it turned out, the first enlistment form, um, setting the example for many others. But he was also, he was very active in traveling around to these different, you know, towns in the Galician district, um, with the German officials, and you know, organizing these rallies, parades, and things along those lines to really amass the support. And, you know, once once it came, or once I realized from the sources why he was doing it, it, it almost made sense, right? Um, you know, he was in very close contact with Galician District Governor Otto Vechter at the time. Um, and vector was someone that came from the old Austrian school, the Habsburg school, if you will. Um, you know, he understood, you know, the, the, the Ukrainian dimension in Galicia, the Polish dimension in Galicia. He understood that quite well, um, and th- that we have to give him credit for. Um, and, you know, he was, he was banking on the Ukrainians to be an added, um, you know, armed bulwark against the oncoming Red Army. Um, now, through these different talks, it, it came out that, um, you know, Hans Frank and Otto Vechter were convinced that once Ukrainians proved themselves in battle in some way on the front, then, you know, the Ukrainian Central Committee could be possibly, you know, turned into something more political. And that, I think, is what motivated Kubyovich a lot, you know, in 1943 and 1944 to not only... Well, the situation between Poles and Ukrainians, but to also get Ukrainians as, as many as he could um, volunteered, trained, armed on the front to prove themselves to stop, you know, the Red Army advance on Lviv, if, if only, you know, and, and be, be a part of, you know, something bigger
1: that that was that was a big question that i had in reading your book because you know how obsessed i am with maps and geographers and cartographers i, I get the impression you know and it's really interesting as i think back to stepan reditski and and the kind of you know galician heritage of of racial geography and eugenics and those sorts of things i i wonder if you, if you might you know, give us a kind of visual impression that you have of Kubiovich in, in the last kind of stages of the, the big war of World War II. It, I have this idea and the image came to my mind of him just doing a lot of counting because, you know, in order to think about this territorial project in Eastern Galicia, he had to wait on that counteroffensive that never happened. So, right. I mean, he's, he's count. he actually bets on it and wages wrong on the Wehrmacht counteroffensive, which would allow Ukrainians to to go back to Galicia and repopulate. So, you know, like what happens when, when he realizes he's wrong with a lot of these, you know, sort of collaborative, collaborating initiatives, because I don't know, I mean, after the war, obviously he's going to draw distance from this and the way he tells the story. Sure.
0: Sure. So how do
1: you how do you see it? What is what is your visual impression of him toward the last stages?
0: You know what? Just one interesting point to piggyback off of what you mentioned earlier: the the fact that he bet wrong. um, Right? He bet wrong first and foremost on on um, the the Ukraine involvement in the first major battle at Brody, um, where they were decimated by by the Soviet Red Army. But then it's interesting, is because he also bet wrong, as well as as you know some others. on the fact that the Germans would stop the Russian um, advance through the Tatra Mountains, um, kind of akin to what happened in World War One, where the Germans stopped the Soviet or the Russian advance there and pushed them back, um, so he bet wrong on two occasions. Um, in 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 that sense, um, yeah, you know, once things started to really show um, that the, the Red Army wouldn't be stopped so easily, there was. Um, a, a massive massive push to get anything and everything that was part of the Ukrainian Central Committee at the local level, at the higher level, um, people involved packed up, moved out as far as possible. So we had this kind of the beginning of the migration west, right? And that that took the form of various different um, various different tracts, a lot of these um, these Ukrainian, Activists moved through, through Slovakia um, um, and into, into Austria, some directly um, into Germany as well. Um, but Kubiowicz spent a lot of time going back and forth at this time um, between Kraków and the general government, what was, what was slowly being left of it, into parts of, you know, Silesia, where certain things were deposited before they were being moved farther west um, into, into parts of the Reich proper, if you will. Um, and, and that was kind of the big, uh, the big push to, to get anything and everything that could fall into Soviet hands out of, out of the way. Um, and and you know, the, the Germans facilitated this rather, rather well. Um, you know, they, they, they facilitated his, his um, exit from the general government as well into the Reich proper. Um, you know, providing him with any necessary documentation and things along those lines. So you know, and, and once once he was there, um, you know, the Ukrainian Central Committee formally disbanded in 1945, and it was this kind of um, push to almost do what repeat what they did, you know, when the Germans invaded Poland in 1939 to form these little little committees, little groups, little organizations that would then. Um, be kind of a representative before, you know, the next uh, occupiers of Germany, and that was hopefully would be you know the Americans and the British for many of the the Ukrainians that were coming from the general government.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And and I guess you know finally this is a really big historiography question, ju- judging from your chapters and from your sources. But what, what would you say are the most promising new say imp- empirical? research avenues, new pursuits to get the story of Ukrainian nationalism straight. And, and and this is, you know, obviously a leading question, but I'm thinking about how Kubiovich tried, because he survived the war, to salvage the project. He, you know, discussed people like Fritz Arlt, uh, who were really, you know, racists and exterminationists, and there's no way of, of you know, avoiding that element of racism and anti-Semitism. Um... But what do you see as, as a kind of promising research angle for, for understanding the aftermath of this and the politics of retribution that followed through the 40s?
0: You know, um, I know there's a, a lot of work is being done now, um, <clears throat> excuse me, looking at many of those members of uh, Oun. um their life after the war, how some of them had links to the CIA and things along those lines. So I think that's a very um, a very interesting perspective at the moment. I know, um, you know Per Anders Rudling is working a lot on that, um, and that's very, very worthwhile. Um, but, but as you mentioned, right, you have Grzegorz Solinsky liebe his work, also very good, um, John Paul Himka, without question um jared mcbride and many of those others are, are doing a lot at the moment so um i mean i, I can keep keep going but um yeah i think you know, <laughs> keep going <laughs> I mean, even even you know uh, and it is, it's unfortunate a little bit as well um that it's only in polish but grzegos matika has has done phenomenal work here um and and you know i wish that some of his some of his you know writings and books would be translated into english because i think that would provide Certainly, a great, um, a great added, um, you know, added value for for Western scholars, especially who maybe aren't too comfortable with Polish.
1: Mm-hmm. And do you see Kubiovich's role changing? Because I, he's guided us through this entire process. And for our listeners who, who don't know, he's uh, the the brains in many ways behind the Encyclopedia of Ukraine, which you know is, was something that so many researchers you know just getting started in ukrainian studies especially in the 1970s when the harvard ukrainian institute got off the ground or the canadian institute of ukrainian studies got off the ground in alberta i mean could you say a few words about not just his memoirs but let's say why why people haven't gone to the 28 volumes in ottawa and the archives and the files and and look through his um look through his holdings very carefully
0: you know, um, one of the things that I'm, that kind of convinces me of that, 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 you know, a lot of that has been kind of not, not taken up, especially by maybe um, Ukrainian historians is because the the fact that Kubiovich is so ingrained um, as, and, in, and, you know, in, in many ways, rightly so, as a very, very successful intellectual, academic scholar, um, that no one wants to Um, how should I say this? No one wants to challenge, perhaps, um, you know, that kind of blind spot that I covered of his activity during the war, right? Because his pre-war story is very interesting, the way he grew up, his experiences in Poland as a Ukrainian, so on and so forth. His post-war experience is very successful being the pioneer of, you know, the, the Ukrainian encyclopedia series. Um, and then there's that small little spot in between that, you know, reading, reading, you know, what I wrote and researching the material sheds a little different light on him. Um, and I think that might be one of the factors where many didn't, many just weren't comfortable perhaps with, with trying to, you know, tackle um, that part of Kubiovich's life.
1: Yeah i i like how you put it in the end and you know you you mention the fact that kubiovich and for that matter the ukrainian nation and state and national consciousness is not just floating on the tides of history and i i think in this very complicated book where you get into the heart of of so many different nation and state relations i i would urge our listeners to read it very very carefully um and and so my last question for you um Dr. Markievich is if you could tell us about your current interests and, and projects. I know our listeners here at NewBooks Network and New Books and East European Studies will, will want to know what you're
0: pursuing. Well, um, you know, given, given the pandemic and things along those lines, it's a little tougher at the moment, but I have, you know, this kind of grand vision um, where I'd like to maybe return to a topic or a, a period of time that's always been interesting for me, and that's the, the the post-war period where the communist systems were implemented throughout East Central Europe. Um, mm-hmm. And I had this kind of idea and perhaps I'll continue with it of writing a history of the recovered territories. Um, uh, the, Jimmy, Jimmy yeah. um, <laughs> <Do> um, it, <laughs> And I, I think that would be very interesting because that also pulls so many different aspects together. Um, there's a very important Ukrainian aspect in all of that that I'd like to also cover um, more broadly, so that's kind of the the broad um, vision. What'll come of that, we'll see. But
1: yeah, Zvi, China, go back to doing some research on my my pal Elginia Romer and his family. Oh yes, there you <laughs> more are. geographers. That's
0: right. That's right. <laughs> well, that's thank right.
1: thank thank you so much, um, really, uh, for for writing this book and congratulations to you, Pavel. Um, we've been speaking here on new books. Uh, network and new books in East European history, new books in diplomatic history, with a new book uh, with uh, author Pavel Markevich, who has a new book out in the excellent Central European Studies series at Purdue University Press. Pavel Markevich is our author, and his book is called Unlikely Allies Nazi German and Ukrainian Nationalist Collaboration in the General Government during World War II, published 2021, Purdue University Press. I've been waiting 20 years for someone to write about Kubiovich in this way. And, and I thank you for that um, and congratulate you. So thank you.
0: Thanks so much for having me once again, Stephen. It was such a pleasure to talk to you.
1: And I'm Stephen Siegel here on New Books Network. Until next time.